Um, I have the privilege today of continuing our series in the Psalms, a short series doing called Songs for Life. And um, today we're looking at Psalm 95. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you want to find Psalm 95. And appropriately, having heard that report from New Day, the, the, the theme of this is worship. We're going to have a, a good day today. Before I start on that, though, let me just show you um, something to start. I'm going to show you a series of photos which are from um, a shop window display. At, I think it's from Selfridges in Oxford Street a few Christmases ago. So if you just put that first photo up, there you can see there's a, a dress. You can see in the reflection. And the big word in big bold letters is want. You know, you've got to want that dress. Okay, next one. Desire. There's a, there's a bag there in the shop window, and it's kind of like this, this bag is something to be desired, and it will make you desirable. Okay, next one, wish. Next one, envy. This jacket, this Burberry jacket, you've got it, there's something to be envied. Next one, crave. And then, adore. Next, fixate. And then, lust then obsess. And then in case we're in any doubt what this is really about, the final one, worship. And I'll say a bit more about this uh, a bit later, but just from the start, let's not make the mistake of thinking that worship is purely a religious activity. It's something that's hardwired in all of us. Worship is hardwired in every human being. It's not a question of if you worship. It's a question of what you worship. And what you worship shapes and defines everything, everything in your life. Now, the Bible, of course, is very clear that our worship, our longings, our desires are to be directed towards God first. We're to direct it all towards God. And Psalm 95 tells us a lot about what worship is really all about. The focus of this psalm is on corporate worship. So when we gather together to worship, like we are today, but it tells us a lot, it's very instructive about what worship is and also what's important in worship, how we worship well. So I'm going to start by reading the first half of the psalm and then we'll come to the final few verses uh, at the end. So from verse one, it says this, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So what does this tell us then about worship? First of all, what is worship? What is worship? Well, here's how Tim Keller, a New York pastor, defines worship. He says worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something and engaging your whole person, your entire being, as you do it. So you've got these two things, ascribing ultimate value to something and engaging your whole person in that process. And we see both of those aspects in this psalm, in Psalm 95. So let's talk about the whole person first. When you worship, whatever it is that you're worshipping, your whole being, for it to be worship, your whole being is engaged in this process. Your will, your mind, your body, and your heart. The whole 
being. So first of all, the will. In this psalm here, there's a very clear invitation from the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, to make a decision to worship God. Verse 1 says, come. Come, let us sing for joy. Verse 6 says, come. Let us bow down and worship. The psalmist is saying, come on. Come on. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's worship God together. Worship of God, actually worship of anything, involves engaging the will. But in this case, he's particularly talking about worship of God. He's saying, make the choice. Make the choice now to put God above all other things that are competing for your attention and for your worship. Make the choice to worship God regardless of how you feel or of what is going on in your life. Now, we live in a very feelings-driven culture, so some people might say to that, but isn't that a bit, isn't that a bit dishonest? Isn't that a bit you know, lacking in authenticity to worship God when you don't really feel like it? No, it's not, because you choose to worship God because it's right. You choose to worship God because of what is true. You, you do it out of recognition of who God is and who you are, that he is creator, I am created. And that I get to come into his presence. You know, I'm allowed to come into the presence of a holy God because he gave his life for me. And so I'm going to worship him. I will worship him regardless of how I'm feeling. That truth doesn't change whether you're feeling it or not. The truth remains the same. And it's, you know, it's often the case that we need to act and then let our feelings catch up. Not the other way around. We, again, we live in a culture that's driven by feeling, but actually it's often we need to act first and let our feelings catch up. I mean, just imagine if we did live our lives purely driven by how we felt. I, I'm guessing that many of us some days don't feel like getting out of bed. But we do get out of bed because that's the right thing to do and because if I don't, that will have negative consequences for my life because I'll end up losing my job. Or I don't feel like tidying the garage or doing the garden. I really don't like doing those things. I really don't. And I often leave them for far too long. But in the end, I make the choice to do it because actually it makes me feel a lot better. When I've done it, I walk into the garage and it's tidy and neat and I smile. You know, I might be strange, but it makes me happy. Order makes me happy. I like it. Worship is first of all a choice, it's an act of the will. I am going to worship God even when I'm not feeling it. For some of you, that might be the one thing that you need to hear today. The one thing you need to really grab hold of and and hold on to. I'm going to worship God because he's worthy, because it's right, because of what is true, not because of what I'm feeling. So your will is involved, your mind is involved in worship. Just have a look at what the psalmist is doing. Verses three to five He says, for the Lord is the great God. He's the great king above all gods. He's he's worth more than all the other gods people might worship. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. Everything, everything is in his hands. The sea is his because he made it. His hands form the dry land. Verse seven then says, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture. That's who he is and this is who we are in him. We're the people of his pasture. We're the flock under his care the psalmist is he's talking to himself he's reminding himself who this God is he's the great God he he's the shepherd he reigns over all he's the maker we're his people and he's thinking about these things he's weighing them he's pondering he's he's meditating on these things he's he's treasuring all these different aspects of the greatness of God until it breaks through in his life 
And it breaks through in his heart and it starts to change him. Your mind has to be engaged in worship. Worship starts rationally. It starts with thinking about and then declaring who God is, what he's done, until it dawns on you. Until there's breakthrough in your heart and you really see his worth. You see his value. You see his, his beauty and you grasp it in such a way that it starts to shape your life and shape your heart. Again, it's, it's pretty obvious. What we fill our minds with shapes how we feel. You know, we can make ourselves feel very sad very easily by thinking about sad things. If you ever do that, you, know, you imagine terrible things happening. Some your mind can just run away with you. You start to imagine the terrible things happening to someone in your family. or so, And you can make yourself feel terrible by filling what you fill your mind with. Equally, you can make yourself feel happy by filling your mind with happy things. The mind has to be engaged in worship, pondering, thinking, treasuring, meditating on the words that we're singing or the words of scripture that have just been read. You know, that's why sometimes it's really helpful when we come to a line in a song and we're able to just kind of home in on it and just repeat it a few times. That, that can be a very powerful moment because what are we doing? We're engaging our minds. We're thinking about, we're chewing over. This is what Neil was talking about last week with scripture, to chew it over, to mutter it to yourself, to meditate on it until there is breakthrough in your heart. It's perfectly possible to sing these songs that we sing with a vacant mind, just going through the motions or maybe thinking about what you're doing later, but that's not worship. That's just moving your mouth and making sounds of varying degrees of tunefulness. Worship involves the whole person. So your will, your mind, your body. Verse 1 talks about singing and shouting. That's ways of using your body in worship. Verse 6 says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So the psalmist is inviting people to not only engage your will, make a choice to worship, engage your mind, think about, fill your mind with the things of God, but also to engage your body in worship. And again, it kind of makes sense. Just like what we fill our minds with can affect how we feel, what we do with our bodies can affect how we feel. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're feeling very, very nervous, like I don't know, going to a job interview or going on the stage or something you feel really nervous. Well, in that situation, often something you'll see people do is something like this. They'll go... Deep breath, shoulders back, head up. Because you're trying to breathe, you're trying to use your body to breathe a sense of confidence and positivity and overcome what you're feeling. Or, I don't know, you might find yourself lying on the sofa after a very big meal and you just feel a bit bloated, you feel a bit lethargic and you're thinking to yourself, I really need to get up and go for a walk because I know that will make me feel better. Now you have to force yourself to do it because the sofa is also very comfortable and very inviting at those moments. But you've got to force yourself, you've got to engage the will but when you do that, what your use of your body does lead to you feeling different. It's the same with using your body in worship. Whether that's shouting, or clapping, or lifting your hands, or dancing, or kneeling, or bowing, or lying on the floor. It's all part of worship, and it's all part of actually saying, come on, heart, catch up. I need to worship God with everything I have. Now, of course, this isn't prescriptive. Just because some people raise their hands doesn't mean you have to raise your hands. Just because some people might kneel doesn't mean you have to kneel. Just because some people might dance, you know, well, I'd plead with some of you not to do that. <laughs> Myself included. I, it wouldn't be kind on anybody. 
But we do all have bodies that we can and we should use in worship. Now, I would suggest there are certain ways of using our body. There are certain postures that are not helpful at all in worship. So, I, kind of that kind of thing. Hands in pockets, head down, or... You know, it says something, doesn't it? It kind of sets a tone. Or... I do see people. You know. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. You know, you can't sing a song like that, like that. Well, you can, but if you're engaging your mind in worship, you're doing what, when you sing a song like that, you're doing what the psalmist is doing. You are reminding yourself of who God is, of who you are, of what he's done. And oh God, you are great. How great is our God. And it might bring this sense of celebration and, and just awe and, and victory. And, and your body can reflect that in ways that are appropriate for you. You might not be the most demonstrative type. You might not be the kind of leaping around and dancing. And, but your body will follow your body. And you can use your body to bring that as well. You can't, not, you can't do it like this. Or it might be a sense of reverence and awe. And you just want to kneel before him. Do something with your body. Engage your body in worship. For you, it might be as simple as, I'm going to close my eyes. That's using your body. I'm going to close my eyes to block out distractions so I can really focus on God. Let's engage the whole person in worship. Your will, your mind, your body, and your heart. Your emotions. It is an emotional thing, and it should be an emotional thing. The psalmist says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Sing for joy to him. He talks about thanksgiving and shouting aloud and extolling him. These are emotional responses. It should be an emotional thing when we worship God. And of course, sometimes we, come, we might come to a gathering like this, and those emotions are there. They're already there because, I don't know, something might have happened in the week that's just been fantastic, been amazing. God's done something incredible. Or before you've come, you've been reading scripture, and it's just, oh, God, you're so good. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready. Come on, let's go. I need to worship him. But I would suggest it's more often the case, like I said before, that our hearts need to catch up with us, engaging our will, our mind, our bodies. So I have a very distinct memory of, uh, I'd been in France for the best part of a year, part of my university course, this was several years ago now, and I hadn't been going to church when I was in France, and I hadn't really been living a particularly godly life. And I remember coming back here, to church here, and feeling cold. I just felt dead and I didn't feel at home. And for me, that was a shock because this was home. It was a real shock. It really shook me. And I remember very distinctly making a decision at that moment. Because why did I make a decision? Because I knew where I had been with God. I knew, I knew what it was to be close to God, to have a good relationship with God. And I knew where I was now. And I wanted to be back there. I didn't want to be here anymore. I wanted to be back there. So I made a decision. I, I decided I'm going to go to every possible worship meeting I can. I'm going to be there on time. Because I don't want to miss any of it. I don't want to miss the opportunity to worship God together with his people. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to lift my hands in worship whether I feel like it or not. I'm just going to, I remember deciding to do that. And you know what? God moved in it. 
Because I decided, because I knew I wanted to be back there, he moved in it. He warmed my heart. He softened my heart. He drew me close to him. I found myself back in a place in good relationship with God again. But I had to choose. I had to use my body. I had to engage my mind in that. Every part of the body needs to be engaged in worship for it to be worship. You know, you can believe in your head that what the Bible says is true, but maybe it never leads you to shout for joy or to, or to uh, see the beauty and see the majesty of God because worship's a lot more than just believing in your head. Or you might be a very emotional person, you might be a very bubbly person, but maybe it never actually leads you to bow or kneel or submit to God, and so it never changes you. Or, or you, you might sing enthusiastically with your hands in the air and all the rest, but your mind's not engaged. It's not worship. You need all of it together for it to be worship. Okay, so remember back to that definition that worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something and engaging your whole person, your entire being, as you do it. So we've talked about the whole person, but what about that first part, ascribing ultimate value to something? Well, what is it in this psalm that triggers the, the joy and the shouting and the thanksgiving and the kneeling and the bowing? What is it that triggers the giving of the engaging of the whole self in worship? Well, verse 3 says, for the Lord is the great God. Verse 7 says, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. The psalmist is saying, look, you, you, you give your whole self in worship. You engage the whole person in worship. First of all, because, for, this is who God is. He's worthy. This is who God is. But then in the act of doing that, in the act of giving our whole selves in worship, we're also declaring that this is who God is. That he is the great God. He is above all other gods. He's above everything else. There's nothing that compares to him. We are ascribing ultimate value to God. Not that in us ascribing value means he's more valuable. We ascribe it because he is. Because that's what's true. We ascribe ultimate value to God. As I said at the beginning, everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. Everyone ascribes ultimate value to something. Everyone builds their life or sets their heart or sets their hope on something. Everyone lives for something. You have to. You, you have to find your meaning in something as part of, part of being human. But the human heart is such that we tend to look for that sense of meaning and purpose, significance, in all sorts of things which may be very good in themselves, like our career or our families, a relationship, or maybe having money or whatever it might be, achievements, rather than looking where we're meant to find it, which is in God. You know, if there's anything about which you can say, if I could just have that, then, then I'll be happy. Then my life would be worth something. If I could just have uh, that much money, or if I could just have that relationship, or that job, that promotion, or a family, whatever that is, that's what you worship. Because that's what consumes you. It consumes the whole of you. And what you worship shapes you. You will be shaped by whatever it is that you're worshipping. The word itself, worship, comes from Old English, worth-ship or worth-shape. Worth-shape, with this sense that you are being shaped by the worth that you put on something, or the way you choose to place worth. You align yourself with what you worship. It's like those brands that I showed at the beginning. What is a brand trying to get you to do? It's trying to get you to align with them, because that brand stands for 
a, a set of values or a certain type of person. And it's saying, you know, ad- identify with us. Be one of us. Align with us. Because if you buy our clothes and wear them, then you're this kind of a person. What you worship shapes your life. And the psalmist is saying, now align yourself with God. Find your meaning in him, only in him, because actually he is the only valid object of human worship. Only he can take it, only he is worthy of it. He's the only valid object of human worship. So if you want to live a transformed life, you've got to transfer your worship from whatever it's focused on now and give it to him. Focus it, direct it towards him. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine a a woman who inherits a piece of jewellery from her mother. And, you know, it's a nice piece of jewellery, but it doesn't strike her as particularly special. Maybe it's not to her taste, and so it gets kind of chucked in the back of a drawer or stuck on top of a wardrobe. Until years later, she finds it again, blows the dust off, and thinks, well, I might as well take it to a jeweller just to see if it's worth anything. And so she takes it to the jeweller, the jeweller looks at this thing, and he, he, he takes an initial look, and then his face changes. And he starts to get a little bit excited, and he, he then gets his little eyepiece thing, and he sticks that in, and he's looking at it more closely to see how it's cut, and the refraction of the light, and all those kind of things. And his face changes again, and his eyepiece drops out, and he starts to sweat a little bit, and he takes this jewel back into his office where he's got other instruments that can you know, assess this thing further. And as he's doing this, he starts to realize that this thing that he's holding in his hand is worth more than all the jewelry he has ever sold put together. And he brings this thing back through and he's trembling, he's sweating because he realizes what he's holding. He's, he's shaking, he's, he's excited. It's, his, his whole being is being engaged by the worth of this thing that he's holding. He is being shaped by the worth of it. She's not yet. And so what's he going to do? He's going to evangelize her. He's going to tell her what she's got. He's going to say to her, do you, you know, you... Because you have this thing, because you own this, you are now more wealthy than you could possibly dare imagine. And when that truth finally dawns on her, it'll probably take a little while to sink in, but when it does, that's going to shape and change her whole life, the whole of her life. Lots of people have a belief in God. And many people actually profess a belief in God and the truth of the Bible, and they come to church as well, but with absolutely no change in their life. Nothing different about them from anyone else, anyone else in the world. Nothing to distinguish them. Nothing to say, this person belongs to God. This person follows Jesus. It's a kind of a chameleon existence where you just blend into whatever context you're in. Now, if that's you, it's because for you, God is a bit like that piece of jewelry that's been chucked to the back of a drawer. He's there. You have him in your life, but you have absolutely no sense of his value. You have no idea of his worth and his beauty and his majesty, his glory. We must learn to worship God, to ascribe ultimate value to God, realize what we have in our hands, realize what this jewel is, how precious this is, get our sense of meaning, significance and purpose from God and then let everything else, career, family, relationships, take their rightful place behind him. Because if you worship something more than God, if you worship something other than God, ultimately it will destroy your life. It will. If you live for the approval of others, if that's where you find your worth, in the approval of others, well, when you receive criticism, it's not just going to be a bit hurtful, it will devastate you. It's like the rug's been pulled from under your feet. 
Or if you, if you live for achievements and success in your career, well, what if you lose your job? You know, losing a job is not a pleasant thing for anybody. But for you, if that's what you live for, it will be devastating for you. It will ruin you. When we lose a loved one, that's obviously something which is extremely acutely painful. It's really painful. It's not something you just get over. But if we're living for a relationship or for our family, if that's the thing that we actually ascribe ultimate worth to, it won't just be painful. It will absolutely destroy you. It will destroy your life. And the psalmist is telling us, no, only God is a valid object of your worship. Only God. But here's the thing. When we truly worship God, when we truly give our worship to God, we become more like him. We change. He changes our hearts. You know, the reason for talking about this today is not so we can just all have a good knees up together and, you know, encourage you to try harder with your singing so that we can all come away thinking we've had a really successful meeting. No, it's about the presence of God coming into his presence. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we're always in his presence, but it's coming into the immediate, tangible presence of God. Verse 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's just been talking about worship and worshipping God and who God is, and then he says, Now, if you hear his voice, because it's in worship that you are far more likely and you're far more able to hear God speak. You come into his presence. You encounter him. He changes us. He softens our hearts. Our lives start to get aligned with him and his desires and what his priorities. And then all those good things in our lives, our career, our relationships, our families, and our perspective on all those things, actually it's all the richer and all the healthier for that repeated act of ascribing ultimate value to God. When we worship God, it just enhances the value of all those other things that are valuable to us. It's not about a meeting. It's about life change. It's about encountering God. So ascribing ultimate value, engaging the whole person. How do we do it well? How do we worship God well? The first thing we've got to understand is the importance of corporate worship. Worshipping in community. Psalmist says, come let us worship. Let us sing. Let us shout. Let us bow. Let us kneel. He's our God. We are his people. It's all corporate. It's all, it's all community. It's all together. It's not to replace individual worship and devotional times. That's really, really important. But corporate worship is essential. It's essential. Let me illustrate it like this. C.S. Lewis was part of a group of three friends. There was himself, Charles, and Ronald. Very close circle of friends, but Charles died. And C.S. Lewis said this. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. His point is this, you can only fully know a person in in community, in fellowship. One-on-one, you only see the part of that person that you bring out. It takes community and seeing a person in community to see all the different facets, all the different parts of that person. Now, if a finite human being can't be fully known one-on-one, how much more is that true of God, the infinite creator of the universe? It is essential to meet regularly, 
Not, not just every now and again, regularly with others to worship, to pray, to study the word. You know, this is the most important part of my week. I mean it. I need this. I need to be with you. I need to worship with you and, and pray with you and study the word with you. To see God reflected in you. I absolutely need this. You know, when I hear people talking about being a Christian and well, I just follow the Bible, but I don't need to go to church to, to do that. Oh, give me a break. Come on. You will end up with a God that is suited to you, which is no God at all. You end up with a, a God conformed to your image, cardboard cutout God who can never challenge you. You get a distorted, small view of God, and that doesn't bring any change in your life. No, if you read and follow the Bible, you can't help but come to the conclusion that God wants you in community. That the church, as imperfect as the church is, is Jesus' idea, and it's his passion. It's his passion. It's his radiant bride. He gave himself for his church, and he builds his church. He's designed you to be in community with each other. He's designed us to be together, to meet regularly, regularly with others who worship the same God as you. And so let me just, I'll just say this, don't miss out on corporate worship lightly. Don't miss this lightly. It's too important for that. So the first thing in worshiping God, well, do it in community. Second and final thing, do it from a place of gospel rest. Do it from a place of gospel rest. This psalm has a bit of a strange ending for a psalm about worship. Let's have a look at what it says. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did on that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's a strange ending to a psalm about worship, isn't it? You start getting to God's anger and they shall never enter my rest. Well, it's referring to something that happened in Israel's history when they were wandering around in the wilderness and they wanting to get to the promised land and importantly to the rest that that promised land offered. Because this existence in the wilderness was not easy. This was really, really hard. Because whenever it was time to move on, you effectively had to load everything up on your back. You're carrying your whole life on your back and off you go and then set down again, then move on again. It's hard and they were burdened and they were weary. But because they didn't listen to God, they hardened their hearts and they didn't listen to God. Two examples specifically given here in Meribah and Massa, but there were lots of other occasions where they were disobedient to God. Then the entry to the promised land was delayed. The entry to that rest of God was delayed, and for some of them, they never got it. They never did enter God's rest. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews is in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4 also refers to that time in Israel's history, but it implies actually that the burden the Israelites carried and the rest that, was, that they were hoping for are symbolic of a greater burden and a greater rest that is available. So Hebrews 4, 9 to 10 says... There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. If you enter the rest of God, you rest from your own work. What, what does that mean? What's that talking about? What, what does it mean by our own work? Well, there's a problem that often we still have, that we're still burdened by. Sometimes it can still be like we're carrying our lives on our backs when we think that we're saved by our works. 
by our own work, by the things that we do, by our performance. Again, this comes back to worth. We do have a tendency to look at our performance to feel that we are worth something, whether that's success at work or being or having money, or being a good moral person, or being a liberal kind of person, or whatever type of person it might be, to feel that your life counts for something. But when we try to get our worth from things like that, it's a burden. When we look to our work, our performance for our worth, it's a burden, because actually, it's like carrying your whole life on your back, because you're never really sure if you've done enough. Have I got enough money? Have I been a good enough person? Have I lived a good enough life? The only way to enter that ultimate rest that God offers and to be freed from that burden, to be freed from our works, is through the gospel. And it's a gospel of grace. So here's the gospel. This is, this is the gospel. Jesus came and he died for you to pay the penalty for your sins. But in doing that, in doing so, he suffered horrifically. Horrifically. And he lost everything. He gave everything. The cost for him was infinite and way beyond what we can possibly imagine. Why did he do that? Why would he do something like that? Well, Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant, Jesus. And there's a line in there that says, he will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied. He will see the results of his suffering and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means that Jesus looks at everything that he gave. He looks at what it cost him. He counts the cost. He weighs it up. But he sees that the results of this are so valuable that it was worth it. He looks at something and says, look at the value of that. Look at the worth of that. It's almost like he's being shaped by the worth of something. He's moved. He was moved by the worth of something to come and suffer and die and give everything he has. So what is that? What is that thing that he looks at? What is it that he has now that he didn't have before? What are the results that he sees that makes his sacrifice so worth it? It's you. It's me. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him that made him do this? It was you. The joy of having you. Because he didn't have you before. Now he does. The joy of being in relationship with you, of knowing you and you knowing him. See, make no mistake here. Understand this. You are so precious to him. You are God's treasured possession. You are like that priceless jewel to him. Jesus treasures you so much. He loves you. He adores you so much that he was willing to give everything for you and think that it was worth it. And when you get that, when you see it, when you see how much he treasures you at infinite cost to himself, then you will really start to treasure him. When you get this, when, when we get this deep down into our hearts, this revelation, and it is a revelation, then you will really start to worship him. When you get a glimpse of his love for you, it's like the burden falls off your back. You enter his rest, the glorious gospel rest of knowing that you are accepted and loved purely because of what he has done And you no longer have to strive and search for your sense of worth in your own performance, in your own works. You just look at what Jesus has done. And that's worship. And now we have an opportunity to do that. 
to do just that, to look at what Jesus has done, first through breaking bread together and then through sung worship. So come. Come on, church. Let's do this. Let's worship him. Decide. Make a choice now. Decide now. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to worship you. Fill your minds with the things of God. Hear his voice. Come into his presence. Respond to him and let him fill you and change you.